Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. As we consider the various things that God calls us to as his people, here's something that I want us to recognize perhaps today, that God calls us to tasks that we cannot accomplish on our own. God calls us to tasks that we cannot accomplish on our own. Now, this might seem frustrating to you. In fact, this is contrary to the way that we think in our society. For instance, we get a particular job because we are the right man or the right woman for the job. We fill out our resumes to demonstrate that we're qualified for the tasks that we wish to apply ourselves to. When we ask others for help on a particular matter, we, we seek out the most qualified individual. And when we seek the services of those we trust in their fields, perhaps a doctor we trust, a bank we trust, a plumber we trust, we want to know it's the right person for the job. Yet interestingly, God doesn't seek out the most qualified. He doesn't seek out the one with the highest success rate or the one with the most experience or the fanciest resume. God calls us to tasks that we cannot accomplish on our own. And there's a reason for the disconnect between our ways and God's ways in this matter. For instance, for us, if, if I hire a terrible CPA, I'm going to likely have some tax problems at the end of the year. If I hire a terrible financial planner, my retirement may be in jeopardy. The reason that this is the case is because when we hire these individuals, the responsibility for success lies completely with them. But when it comes to those things that God calls us to, it's not the case that it relies solely on us. The power to accomplish what God has called us to does not reside with us. I'm reminded of the call of Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and I want to just read three verses from that passage. God says, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will go worship God on this mountain. You know, God asked a lot of Moses. I don't want us to miss this. Here's in essence what he's saying. Go to the most powerful man in the land, the one who could order your execution, the one who could wipe your people off the face of the earth, and tell him to let all the Hebrews go, his entire workforce, those he has subjugated as slaves. Just tell him to let them go. And Moses' response is on the money. Who am I? And yet, how did God respond? God didn't respond by building Moses up. Hey, Moses, you got this. You smooth-talking guy, go make it happen. No, that's not how God responded to Moses. God said, I will be with you. God calls us to tasks that we cannot accomplish on our own. 
He calls us to these tasks because he will be with us. And it is by his power that these things get done. That was true for Moses and countless others throughout Israel's history, which we read about in Scripture. And in our text today, we see it was true of the earliest Christians as well. And I submit to you that the same is true for us in our context today. So turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. Acts 4, beginning in verse 23. And as you're turning there, I want to just provide you a reminder of what we've read up to this point. Peter and John performed a miraculous sign by healing a man who had been lame since birth. And as a result, thousands of people came to faith in Jesus. But this event attracted the attention of the religious leaders, and they had Peter and John arrested. And while they desperately wanted to mete out some form of punishment upon the apostles, they couldn't at that time because the people were amazed at what they had, uh, what they had done, and the evidence was, was insurmountable that a miraculous sign had literally taken place before them. And here, even, as, as the religious leaders had Peter and John and wanted to mete out punishment on them, the evidence for the miracle, the healed man, literally stood right there next to them. And so the religious leaders had to release Peter and John. But they did so with a stern warning, with many threats, to stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. And our narrative picks up from there in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. The text says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand and heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Now, last week, I drew your attention to the potential danger that Peter and John faced in their engagement with the religious leaders. Not only did their ministry put them in the crosshairs of the religious leaders because of the content of their message, but they were on thin ice for other reasons as well, which I'll remind you of now. The captain of the temple guard would likely have recognized these men as being with Jesus during his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. The temple guards were the ones who arrested Jesus in the garden, and they were also the ones who arrested the apostles right here on the temple grounds and brought them to jail and also brought them before uh, the religious leaders. And they had escaped in the garden. And so right now, as they're encountering them again, Peter and John technically were fugitives from the law. 
able to be arrested because they were with Jesus. Further, the religious leaders mentioned in this narrative are the exact same ones who examined Jesus and who determined him to be a blasphemer. They condemned him to death, turning him over to the Romans, and they demanded his crucifixion. And before all the crowds in Jerusalem, they made a case against Jesus to the Roman governor Pilate so that he would execute Jesus. And now these men are standing at the most holy site of Israel, the temple in Jerusalem, And they've been proclaiming that this Jesus, whom the religious leaders condemned, is the Messiah and will be the personal agent of a future resurrection. Now, if these religious leaders orchestrated the death of Jesus, it wouldn't have been too hard for them to do the same to the apostles here. It's absolutely amazing that Peter and John escaped their encounter with the religious leaders unscathed. But even though they were released, there was still a problem. They were released, but they were given strict orders not to preach in the name of Jesus any longer. And the religious leaders sent them away with many threats. And I could only imagine what those threats might have entailed. Best case scenario is perhaps jail for a long time. Worst case scenario is they'd meet the same end as Jesus. And so pretty much the, the standing order was stop or else. And here's the problem. They couldn't stop. Jesus had commanded them to proclaim the gospel. They've seen the truth of it with their own eyes. They walked with Jesus for three three plus years. They've seen his miracles. They heard his teaching. They knew who he was. They had seen him risen from the dead. And they knew what was at stake. And they knew they had to live a life that was pleasing to God and not pleasing to men, regardless of the consequences. So as our passage today picks up, we see the apostles returning to the rest of the believers. We see them recount what had happened and what the religious leaders said. And now the whole community of Christians knew what was at stake. And what did they do? They prayed. And this wasn't a prayer of celebration. Thank you, Lord, for saving our hides back there. That wasn't the type of prayer that was prayed. This was a prayer that recognized God's sovereignty, that recognized the task that God had called them to, that recognized the dangerous obstacles that stood before them, and that recognized the fact that God needed to be the one to accomplish his purposes through his people. Because that is the only way the mission could be accomplished. God calls us to accomplish tasks that we cannot accomplish on our own. In our text today, again, starting in verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, earlier I mentioned Moses and his mission to go to Pharaoh and demand that the Hebrews be let go. 
And here are some facts that we need to remember about that. Moses was stressed out because he had no idea what was going to happen. But God always knew exactly what was going to happen. God knew what Pharaoh would say. God knew how Pharaoh would retaliate. God knew the plagues he would send on Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. God knew what effect the plagues would have. There was never a moment of the entire Exodus story that was beyond God's sovereignty. Everything played out exactly as he willed it to. And in the prayer of the church here in Acts, they understood this as well. They heard the news and they immediately went to prayer. Why? Because this situation is out of their control. But all things are under God's control. And so they begin with the recognition in their prayer of God's sovereignty. Sovereign Lord, they call out. What does it mean that God is sovereign? That's a word that we use pretty much only within the context of the church. Uh, and perhaps we don't give it a whole lot of thought what it means. What does it mean that God is sovereign? It means that there's none higher. God has no equal. He is all-powerful over everything and everyone. He is all-powerful over the events of history. In fact, he wrote both the beginning and the end of the story, and in the middle, everything is working toward his purposes. God is sovereign. They prayed, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Well, why is this important? Because all things are under his authority. All things are under his reign. All things are under his power. God created it all. He created it. He sustains it. It is all subject to him. And in this moment, as the early church faced a very serious threat, a threat that can literally end their lives, a threat that sought to destroy their fledgling movement, they knew that the powers that stood against them did not hold dominion over God and his power. And as they went to him in prayer, they knew who it was that they spoke to. Friends, do you realize that this is the same God who we pray to? Do you realize that this is the same God who is at work in the world right now? He hasn't ceased to be sovereign. He hasn't encountered a new enemy that he's not able to handle. The task of bringing his purposes to bear has not become too much for God. No, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so I want to pause for just a moment to remind you of this. We have to pray. We have to pray because the mission that we've been called to is just too big for us. We have to pray because the enemies lined against us are too strong for us. We have to pray because despite all of that, God is still sovereign. We pray to invite God to be God in the situations that we find ourselves in as we faithfully serve him in this world. So here's an interesting question. I ask weird questions of the Bible as I'm studying. Here's a question. Why did the early Christians begin their prayer with all of these comments on God's sovereignty? Like, why do they start out? Why didn't they just jump right into the ask? Why didn't they just bring their request before God? Why all of this introduction that spoke of God's sovereignty? Do they have to remind God that he's sovereign so that he would act in this situation? No, I don't think so. Were they buttering God up? You know, maybe if we 
pray nice things about him, he'll be more inclined to act. No, that's not it either. Then why not jump right into the request? Why recount God's sovereignty to him in prayer? I believe they were demonstrating their hope in him. They were professing both their understanding of God and their faith in him. In a way, they were exclaiming to God why they were coming to him to begin with. Friends, if we believe God is sovereign over all things in this world, we will pray, and we will ask him to further his will in and through us. We'll bump into obstacles, and we will pray that God breaks them down. But if we don't truly believe God is sovereign, if we don't trust that he will intervene, if we question whether or not he can overcome the mess that we are faced with, then we're not going to pray. And it's scary to think about this, but I can't help but wonder how many, how many Christians don't pray because they really don't trust in the sovereignty of God. Have you given up on trusting God to come through in the difficult times, in the big problems, in the major obstacles? Do you have a loved one, perhaps, who's been far from God for a long time, and you'd all, you've all but given up on God's ability to draw them unto himself? Have you desperately wanted to share the gospel with a friend, but that perfect opportunity to talk with them or the right words to say just keep on eluding you, and you've begun to doubt if God is really with you in this endeavor? Has it seemed like the sharp cultural turn has made it more and more difficult to have productive gospel-centered conversations with others? While you never say it aloud, you can't seem to imagine that God can break through the spiritual darkness that you see all around. Friends, you need to remember this today. God is sovereign over everything. Even though he has given human beings free will, and they constantly use their free will to rebel against him, and even sometimes to actively war against him and his purposes, man, they're going to lose. It's not even a fair fight. God is sovereign, and he will never cease to be sovereign. Again, in our text today, verses 25 through 28, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Catch this. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You know, David recognized it. The nation's rage and the people's plot in vain. In other words, it amounts to nothing. Kings and rulers, people of power, band together against God and to no avail. And these early Christians had the prime example unfold right in their midst. Their leaders and the Roman leaders executed the Son of God. In fact, we saw a few weeks ago in our text, Peter made it clear that they killed the Lord of life. God's anointed one, the Messiah, was killed. And I could only imagine in that moment that the religious leaders felt like they had won, that their purposes had been achieved, that they stopped this movement, that they stopped this threat, this nuisance, and they put it to death forever. But we know that that wasn't the case. That wasn't the end of anything. That was exactly what had to happen. 
That was exactly what God had always said would happen. Again, verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They played right into God's hands. God is sovereign. And so these early Christians, having an inkling of the uphill battle before them, and yet trusting in the sovereignty of God, poured it all out before him in prayer. Verses 29 through 30 say, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I love this. This is completely contrary to the way we pray, but I love it. This is completely contrary to the way I pray, and I am so deeply convicted by it, but I love it. What do I mean by that? I would, I would bet the bottom dollar that our prayers would be more like this if we were in their situation. Lord, they threatened us. Please keep us safe. Please don't let them bring us harm. Let our ministry go undetected by the religious leaders. Or something like that. Or even worse, perhaps we would not pray. Instead, we would so lower the volume on our mission's work or stop it completely so that no harm would befall us. And friends, if that's true, shame on us. If that's true of us, then shame on us. Think of the context of this prayer. The enemies of God succeed in bringing real harm against God and his people, but these attempts are in vain because God will succeed. God is sovereign. Nothing will thwart his will. Nothing is more powerful than him. And this prayer, in this vein, what they're saying in our words is this, God, you know what they're trying to do. You know what they've said, and you know what links that they will go through in order to, to stop us from spreading the gospel. We might be imprisoned. We might die. Please, God, even so, give us the ability to proclaim the gospel all the more, even in the face of such persecution. And may we respond to these dangers with even more boldness. And may you demonstrate your power through us. That is the heart of what they are praying to God in this moment. This was their prayer. They knew that they had been entrusted with a task that they could not accomplish on their own. But they knew that God was with them and that God would accomplish it. And they, might, and, and they might give literally everything, but they knew it would not be for nothing. God would succeed in and through them. And what do we see as our passage concludes? God comes through. Now we know if we read through the book, if we consider the fact that 2,000 years later, because of their testimony, here we stand for Jesus, we know that God comes through in the big picture. But even right here in this moment, he came through in a special way. We read this in Acts 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So they prayed and God showed up in a tangible way by supernaturally shaking the place where they were meeting. And the Holy Spirit empowered them just as they had asked for in prayer, and they proclaimed the word of God boldly, which is what they wanted to do. 
Friends like Moses and like the early church, we've been given a mission that we can't possibly accomplish on our own. What's our mission? We talk about this often here, don't we? The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is our mission. And I have news for you. You can't do this. I can't do this. In fact, us banding together as Belglade Alliance Church, every one of us giving our all toward this, we can't do this. I'll go even further. All of the churches in Belglade working together can't do this. In fact, even if all of the Christians in the entire world for the last 2,000 years took this charge seriously and gave their all toward accomplishing this, we still could not do it. It's a task that's too big for us to accomplish. So should we give up? No, because God can and will accomplish this, and he'll do it through his church. But that doesn't mean that we could sit back, relax, and wait for God to do it. In fact, the examples we've already looked at today, that's not how they responded. Moses didn't hang out in Midian by the burning bush waiting for God to rescue the Hebrews from Egypt. He obediently followed God and allowed God to work through him. The early Christians that we're reading about here in Acts, they didn't hunker down in their homes and wait for God to spread the gospel without them. They gave their very lives in the spread of the gospel, obedient to the Great Commission, and God worked through them. And we've been given our marching orders from our king as well. We must be obedient to him working to fulfill the great commission which he has entrusted to us. And thanks be to God, it is him, the Lord, who will do the work, accomplishing his very purposes, achieving the victory, building his kingdom through us. So friends, let's get into some trouble. Let's tick off those spiritual forces that stand against our God by being a church that has awakened from slumber and has owned its mission. And what happens when the enemies of God stand against us? Well, guess what? We'll pray, and we'll remember that God is sovereign, and we will trust him to work, even through us, to build his kingdom.